Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast focusing on the novelist, short story writer, public intellectual, spy, journalist, essayist and much else besides Elizabeth Bowen. After her death she was often seen as a post-Bloomsbury figure and a writer that followed the high modernists but now I think she's seen as a key figure of intermodernism and a major European writer coming as she did from an Anglo-Irish background. And in the last 10 years or so, her reputation has really continued to grow and thrive. And she's now seen as an experimental writer, poised between poetry and prose. Uh, not only in uh, her work, but also in her life as well. Many lasting friendships and interesting relationships, including with other uh, major authors such as Virginia Woolf and Iris Murdoch. Joining me today to discuss Bowen's life and work are Nicola Darwood. Hello, Nicola. Hi, Miles. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming on. Nicola's a senior lecturer at the University of Bedfordshire, and she's published a monograph and essays on Bowen's fiction and is co-editor of and writes reviews for uh, the Elizabeth Bowen Review. She's also co-founder and co-chair of the Elizabeth Bowen Society, which runs, among other things, a bi-monthly online reading group. So she's absolutely key figure, and I'm so glad that she's on the podcast today. Thank you. We also have um, Alan Hepburn. Hello, Alan. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Um, Alan is James McGill Professor of 20th Century Literature at McGill University, and he's edited four books concerning Bowen's uncollected uh, short stories, essays, radio broadcasts and book reviews. And for a special issue of um, the Irish University Review published early the, earlier this year, he edited a selection of Bowen's correspondence with the American writer Eudora Welty. So, Alan, thank you so much for coming on. It's, uh, it's great to have you. And my final guest is uh, Nicholas Royal. Hello, Nicholas. Hello, Miles, and thank you too for me very much for inviting. Well, it, it, on, honestly, it's, it's a pleasure to have such uh, three, you know, um, superb academics working um, right at the, the cutting edge of Bowen studies. So it's great to have you all. Uh, Nicholas is professor of English at the University of Sussex, uh, where I spent some very happy years um, quite a while back. Um, he's the author uh, with Andrew Bennett of Elizabeth Bowen and the Dissolution of the Novel. His other publications include The Uncanny, uh, which is on my bookshelves, and um, Veering, A Theory of Literature, uh, and Elin Sizou, Dreamer, Realist, Analyst, and Writing, um, as well as he's published two novels, Quilt, uh, which came out in 2010, and An English Guide to Birdwatching in 2017, and most recently, Mother, a Memoir. So welcome to you all again. Thanks so much for coming on and also for being part of um, the first podcast of the third season. Uh, Nicholas, can we start with you, please? And um, could you give us some thoughts on first reading Bowen, experiencing Bowen? Yes, that, thank you, Miles. I, I wanted to, to try to talk about this idea of what it was first like reading Elizabeth Bowen. Uh, I came to Bowen quite late, I suppose. I was 30... 30 years old and um, I was asked, stroke told, uh, asked very nicely uh, if I would teach uh, an Elizabeth Byrne novel called To the North and uh, as I say I had no experience of her fiction or really anything about her other than what I suppose one gathers in in that sort of cultural um, miasma of, of references and and um, rumor and and illusion and my sense was that that she was a novelist who wouldn't interest me because she was uh, very mannered 
this was one of the, the sort of preconceptions that I carried to my uh, first encounter with her. So the first book that I opened by Elizabeth Bone was, was To the North. And I would like to read, if I may, from the opening of that novel from 19... Yes, absolutely. That'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. Towards the end of April, a breath from the north blew cold down Milan platforms to meet the returning traveller. Uncertain thoughts of home filled the station restaurant where the English sat lunching uneasily facing the clock. The Anglo-Italian Express, Chiasso, Lucerne, Basel and Boulogne leaves at 2.15. It is not a Trandalux. To the north, there were still the plains, the lakes, the gorges of the Ticino. But as the glass brass barred doors of the restaurant flashed and swung, that bright circular park outside with its rushing girdle of trams was the last of Italy. Cecilia Summers, a young widow returning to London was among the first to board the express. She had neglected to book a place and must be certain of comfort. She dropped her fur coat into a corner seat, watched the porter heave her dressing case into the rack, sighed, got out again, and for a few minutes more paced the platform. By the time she was seated, finally, apathy had set in. When two more women entered, she shut her eyes. Getting up steam, the express clanked out through the bleached and echoing Milan suburbs that with washing strung over the streets, sustained like an affliction, the sunless afternoon glare. As they approached Como, Cecilia and her companions spread wraps and papers over the empty places, but an English general got in with his wife, creating a stir of annoyance. The general took one long look at Cecilia, then put up the times between them. At Chiasso they stopped dead, it appeared forever. Rain fell darkly against the walls of the sheds. Cecilia began to feel she was in a cattle truck, shunted into a siding. English voices rang down the corridor. Swiss officials stumped up and down the train. She thought how in Umbria the world had visibly hung in light and a bird sang in the window of a deserted palace. Tears of quick sensibility pricked her eyelids. As the wait prolonged itself and a kind of dull tension became apparent, she sent one wild comprehensive glance round her fellow travellers as though less happy than cattle, conscious they were all going to execution. The St. Gotthard, like other catastrophes, becomes unbearable slowly and seems to be never over. For some time they blinked in and out of minor tunnels. Suffocation and boredom came to their climax and lessened. One was in Switzerland, where dusk fell in sheets of rain. Unwilling, Cecilia could not avert her eyes from all that magnificence in wet cardboard, ravines, profuse torrents, crag, pine and snow-smeared precipice, chalets upon their brackets of hanging meadow. Feeling a gassy vacancy of the spirit and stomach, she booked a place early for the first service of dinner, 
She had lunched in Milan too early and eaten little. She pulled a novel out of her dressing case, picked up her fur coat and ran down train behind the attendant. The general sighed. He was romantic. It pained him to see a beautiful woman bolt for the dining car. In the dining car, it was hot. The earliest vapours of soup dimmed the windows. Cecilia unwound her scarf. She watched fellow passengers shoot through the door and stagger unhappily her way between the tables, not knowing where to settle. The train, at this point, rocks with particular fury. It seemed possible she might remain alone. This first service, with its suggestion of the immoderate, does not commend itself to the English. Also, Cecilia, by spreading out gloves, furs and novel, occupied her own table completely and had the expression, at once alert and forbidding, of a woman expecting a friend. She was not, however, unwilling to dine in company. Looking up once more, she met the eyes of a young man who, balancing stockily, paused to survey the car. A gleam of interest and half-recognition mutually flattering passed between them. They retracted the glance, glanced again, the train lurched, the young man shot into the place opposite Cecilia. Those are uh, the opening uh, couple of pages, the opening uh, four or five paragraphs of To the North. And uh, I suppose it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say they changed my life. Um, I'd recently lost my brother and uh, I had my first job, which was was in Finland uh, at the University of Tampere. Uh, so I had just myself traveled to the north. Uh, I was in a state of grief and I was ready, I suppose, to to read anything. And I knew I had to read this novel. But as I as I began reading it, and, and by the time I think I got to the um, the magnificence of wet cardboard, um, I I felt a kind of astonishment uh, at the writing, at the intelligence of the writing, at the the humour, uh, the subtlety, uh, the intricacy of the syntax, and the sense of of movement so it's it's a cliche i suppose that bowen herself uh, helped to concretize as it were that that bowen characters are perpetually in transit but this this is a this is writing that is perpetually in transit and i i'd never really encountered anything like it i'd also i suppose found myself really swept away by the sense that somehow this really was a novel. You know, there was some sense that, uh, you know, I've, I've read novels before, but there's something about this that is just uh, extraordinarily um, singular and, and, and subtle and gripping. And um, I had never read anything like it before. So I, I'm not sure, have I, have I come to the end of my allotted time here, Miles? Or, or... That, that's that's fascinating, Nicholas. Thank you. I, and what happened to you after that? Did you then um, devour the rest of her oeuvre, or did you um, did you have to no, almost put, it, put it to one side? Yeah, I'm a very I'm a very slow reader. It takes me a long time to read anything. And um, 
I, I'm very dilatory in all sorts of ways, really. So it was a year or so before I advanced much further. Um, but I was, I think the, the turn, the additional turn in, in the story here would be uh, another uh, young man from England showed up at my university, a man called Andrew Bennett. And he too was asked or told to teach to the North. So he too <laughs> read this novel and uh, having not read Bowen before, had a similarly transformative kind of surprise, you know, in-, in mm, Sure. And out of that, we, we became, you know, we, we, were, we were reading Bowen from then on together, talking about Bowen. Um, obviously our book on Bowen emerged directly out of this experience, but we also found ourselves editing a, a thing called the Bowen Newsletter, which uh, I'm sure probably not even uh, Alan and Nicola have come across because it, it was literally a sort of A4 um, photocopy, which, which we distributed among a very small circle of uh, other Bowen fans that we knew. And uh, it, it, it's, um, we, I think it ran for about four years. Uh, mm. And in some ways, it's a, a testament to, among other things, other other people discovering Bowen for the first time and writing about Bowen. So uh, it, it was a very it was a very sort of in some ways amateurish beginning, I guess. You know, amateur in the strong sense of just loving it, just just sure. loving writing and uh, and this was how, how different it was. Yeah. And, and this was in the 1990s when Bowen was seen very much as a kind of a, a minority pursuit, I suppose, in literary studies. Would that be fair to say? I suppose she was, yeah. And um, I guess that was that was part of the challenge that we had when we were writing the book, because we couldn't find a publisher. You know, we, we I think it was the third publisher. It was months and months before we could get anybody interested in the idea of a book about Elizabeth Bowen. Mm. Yeah, no, I can quite understand why. And yet here we are, you know, 25 years later and, um, and, and she's, she's found her place, I think, in the, in, in the 20th century canon, which is wonderful. Uh, Nicola, can we turn to you, I think, now and um, talk a little bit about um, not just her fictional writing, but also her letter writing? Because it seems to me, and I, I, I'm clearly not as um, well up, up on, on Bowen and, and her work and biography as, as, as you are, you experts are, but it seems to me that there's, a really, there's a really strong connection between the, the friendships that she makes, the letters that she writes, and the fiction that she's producing at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to say something to, to Nick, actually. Your book sure. um, that came out just changed my way of thinking about Elizabeth Bowen. It was the first book I read when I started my PhD. So I have send enormous thanks to you for that book, you and, you and Andrew Bennett. Thank you, Nicola. That's my little fandom going on there. Um, so I want to talk about um, Elizabeth Bowen's letters, both in her life and in her fiction, so her real ones and her fictional ones. As was the case with many of her generation, she was a really prolific letter writer. And um, we've been very fortunate because some of those letters have been published in recent years. So we've got the correspondence between Bowen to Charles Ritchie, and his corresponding diary entries that were edited by Victoria Glendinning and with Judith Roberts. Um, 
letters and diary entries that chart a, a relationship that lasted over 30 years. And then more recently, and one I've really enjoyed, been Julia Parry's editing, edited version of the letters between Bowen and Parry's grandfather, Humphrey House, um, which cast light on that extraordinary relationship in the 1930s. And even more recently is Alan's work on the correspondence between uh, Welty and Bowen, which um, is, is fabulous. And in the archives, there's a wealth of letters which would be invaluable to any Bowen scholar, of course. There's letters to and from Virginia Woolf, uh, William Plomer, H.G. Wells and Iris Murdoch. So they're all waiting there, ready to be picked up and, and done something with. Some of these letters touch on really serious issues, such as the letter to L.P. Hartley that she wrote on the 1st of April 1953. This is written about seven months after Alan Cameron had died, her husband. And this she writes... Um, in Venice for two days, more or less by myself, I became so melancholy, so much a prey to the feelings of a vacancy that I do myself, do my best to evade these days, that I wept from a small bridge into one of the small canals. In other letters, she writes about her writing. So this is from a letter to William Plomer dated 1st of June 1963, where Bowen's writing about the little girls. And she says that the ending of the novel, quote, does now please me, rather helpful and helpful. Happy. And in the same letter, she refers to the novel as a, a recall of sensory experience. Sometimes the letters that she writes, and I've seen, they're just about daily arrangements, perhaps an invitation to tea or, or to dinner. But all her letters paint this amazing picture of a woman who was really at the centre of British literary life for half of the 20th century. And given that Bowen was such an enthusiastic correspondent, it's probably no surprise that she uses letters as a narrative device in a number of her novels and in her short stories. And what I've done today is I've picked out a few of my absolute favourites to, to talk about. So I'll start off with um, the little girls. And in, in the little girls, letters fly between the adult women. And the one I particularly like is sent from Dinah to Claire. Um, but using Claire's childhood nickname of Mumbo, dragging her back into the childhood. So Dinah's taken a real fancy to a knife that Claire has in her shop. Her shop is called Mopsy Pie. But as Dinah says, and I, I quote from the little girls, I know that giving anybody a knife is supposed to cut a friendship, but that is made all right if you give the giver sixpence or even the penny in return. You need not worry that you would be giving me a dangerous thing. That knife, I tried it, would cut nothing but butter, and very rightly. And then she continues, which is one of my favorite lines in the book. And you need not worry if it is a symbol as practically everything is, as we now know. Nice little nod there. Sometimes her fictional letters evoke a sense of horror of impending doom. So there's the letter in The Demon Lover, Bowen's much anthologized short story, written and set during the Blitz in the Second World War. Just to give it some context of what Bowen was feeling like during that period and what she refers to in the introduction to the American version of um, Demon Lover and Other Stories, and which refers to as the rising tide of hallucination. This is what she writes in The Heat of the Day. This is probably my favorite passage from The Heat of the Day. I will probably stumble over it, so I give you advanced apologies. Not knowing who the dead were, you could not know which might be the staircase somebody for the first time was not mounting this morning, or at which street corner the news vendor missed a face, or which trains and buses in the home-going home -going rush were this evening lighter by at least one passenger. These unknown dead reproached those live, left living by their own death, which could not be mended now. 
the wall between the living and the living became less solid as the wall between the living and the dead thinned. And so we've got that background and that backdrop and it's that unknowingness which we also see in the demon lover. When Catherine Drover returns to a London home and finds a letter that's apparently from her long dead fiance, you can read into that different ways, of course, um, reminding her of her, their appointment to me that afternoon, a letter which ends, you may expect me therefore at the hour arranged until then, and then a dreaded ellipsis box just to lead us into the sunset. And then she gets into a panic, she runs from her home, she gets into a taxi, the taxi jolts to a stop, and again, quoting from the short story, through the aperture, driver and passenger, not six inches between them, remained for an eternity eye to eye. Mrs. Drover's mouth hung open for some seconds before she could issue her first scream. So Letters from the Past also haunt Bowen's 1955 novel, A World of Love, in which Bowen started to write soon after Alan Cameron's death in 1952. Again, like, um, the demon lover, these are letters written by a dead fiance. They're written by Guy to Antonia. The letters are hidden in the attic and then they're discovered by Jane, who's a very impressionable young woman. Like the letter that Catherine Drover finds waiting for her in London, there's a sense of malignancy, I think, in Guy's letters. Um, and he writes to Antonia, you'll never see the last of me. That sense of horror just bubbling underneath. Uh, Bowen, uh, come now is probably to my favourite of the novels, I think, that would change week by week. But Bowen's use of letters as a narratorial device can be seen in Eva Trout or Changing Scenes, which is her last published novel. In contrast, contrast to A World of Love, where letters have been delivered but hidden, in Eva Trout, Bowen teases us with letters that are written but not delivered. There are, if I've got my maths right, 12 letters and three telegrams in Eva Trout. Eva sends telegrams to Constantine and to Henry Dancy, the boy or the young man with whom she stages a mock wedding trip. And then in a telegram to Constantine, her guardian, she writes showing absolutely no regard for correct grammar. Gone away again owing to conspiracy you probably know of. And then to Henry, she writes, are in Paris, so pretty, wish you could join us. To which Henry, who's a Cambridge student and obviously much better with his English, replies very tersely, have sense, Middle of term, how could I, Henry? And there's correspondence between Constantine and Isolt, which is Eva's former teacher with whom she lives for a while. But interestingly, there are two letters here that are written, but never received. The first is from Henry to Eva, in which he expresses how he feels about her, but this gets lost. Eva sends him a postcard giving, her, giving him her address in Paris, but that gets to him after he's posted his letter. And then the second dead letter, is the one from Professor Holman, which is written in the expectation that Eva will never receive it. And it's a letter which occupies a real central position in the novel. Professor Holman's a professor of philosophy, and it's really appropriate, therefore, that his letter attempts to provide a philosophical discussion of Eva. Knowing, however, that the letter probably won't reach Eva, the letter becomes an academic treatise on both Eva and the professor. And he goes through this really torturous way of trying to work out what he's going to say and how he's going to say it and what he thinks about writing the letter. So he says, do I already look on this letter as doomed to have as its reader myself only? More than half I write for my own eye, yet what I write may by some remote fortuity reach yours. 
How what I write will strike me should it return, I cannot compute. Weeks may have elapsed when it reappears. I may by then be a different man, though I do not think so. So like Henry's letter, this one never, never reaches Reva. Um, and we get this parathetical note at the end of the letter, which reports, this unclaimed letter was in due course returned to the sender, Professor Holman, nothing further having been heard of the addressee since she telephoned cancelling the reservation. And I've wondered in my mind when you read these books, what would have happened if we'd have actually received that letter? But we'll never know because Bowen doesn't tell us. And I just want to finish, and I know I've probably spoken for far too long, but I want to talk about one of my favourite letters. It's one that Bowen spent, sent to P.N. Furbank, the, the writer and critic, on the 3rd of February 1969, just nine days after he'd, his review of Eva Trout was published in The Times. So although thanking him for the review, Bowen takes him to task for misquoting her. Something she says, which is in the reviewer, unpardonable. And she continues and really goes for the jugular. When one is quoting, one must check and double check. Surely you know this. But then she sweetens the pill a little by continuing, I am mildly shocked, but do send you my kindest regards. So in life as in fiction, I know it's brilliant. Her letters start all they inform and perhaps hopefully as this one obviously has with Miles, amuse the reader a little. I think so. Um, and, and some good advice there, I think, for, for book reviewers everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I, I wonder what you think. Um, I've, been, I've been reading some of the, uh, the biographical work about Bowen's life um, over the last uh, week or two. And the transitory nature of her childhood and this kind of the separation and the anxiety that it creates, as well as, of course, her, her, her father's mental illness, her mother's um, early death in her life. Do you think that this is... These these letters, this um, epistolary relationships that we've got in the novels are kind of uh, concerns that she's got that she's just bringing out from a, a deep well of anxiety from her own background. It's an interesting one, isn't it? It's, it's always a, a question of how much we can read the author into the text. But yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, yes, I think some of those anxieties do come through. But it's just also writing and working out issues around identity Sure. Um, and, and everything else that goes with it. So, yeah, there's probably some of that in there because um, she said I, that, she says at one point that all writing is transposed biography, so we must expect a little bit of her work to be in there. Yes, I think I, I think that, that's probably fair enough. And I think um, that's a really good seek into talk, talking to Alan as well, because, Alan, I know you want to talk a little bit about Bowen and friendship and friendships and thinking about um, how those work in, in the life and the work. Maybe you've got some thoughts as well on... Um, where these, where these ideas and these letters need, that come from. I do, and I think that what I have to say is, uh, to follow on uh, from Nicola's points about letters, um, I'm going to elaborate in the direction of friendship. And like Nicola, I'd like to talk about this subject of friendship um, in the life and in the fiction as sure. separate and overlapping uh, entities. Um, I think first, so I, from uh, Nicola's points about letters and letter writing, she certainly maintained her friendships through letter writing, through a kind of constant correspondence. I think uh, the idea of keeping up with friends was uh, very important to her, but it also letters and correspondence were ways for her to cut off friendships. Uh, you see this time and again in the way that she does, she decides not to maintain a friendship. Um, an example of this would be with Carson McCullers, who arrived at Bowen's court 
uh, uh, was on a series of alcoholic binges. This is in the early 1950s. Uh, Bowen clearly could not tolerate uh, Carson McCullough's presence in her house. She wrote to Eudora Welty about what an unwelcome guest she was. I'd also like to say, however, that there's there's something about the Welty McCullers uh, friendships that are a pattern for Bowen. She often had younger female friends. She functioned for them as a mentor, as a an overseer, as a cheerleader, as somebody with whom she could share experience. So if you think about it, I think that Mur Murdoch falls into this pattern as well. They had a, a long friendship, but their, their age difference was 20 years. Bowen was born in 1899, Murdoch was born in 1919. And this is true of other friends. So Eudora Welty was 10 years younger than Bowen was. Uh, she had a, an intimate friendship with May Sarton, who was born in 1912, so was 13, younger than, 13 years younger than Bowen. Um, McCullers was born in 1917. Uh, she also had friends, obviously, who were in the same age group. Uh, we know that Yvonne Moi, for instance, uh, was among her friends uh, born of just a few years later. Molly Keene, who was born in 1904. So I think that there's something about these uh, friendship, female friendships in particular, I would say, that uh, are important to her and often intergenerational. Um, I've looked at the correspondence from Adeline Morrell that came to Bowen um, before Morrell's death in the 1930s. It's actually a really interesting correspondence because you can smell literally uh, Adeline Morrell's perfume on the letters of uh, this kind wow. of really redolent concoction that she, you know, you could you could you can still smell when you take the letters out of the envelope. It's an ex, and it's an extraordinary experience. I think there's something about the friendships too that often developed out of uh, Bowen's reviewing of people's books. So her uh, Bowen says that her relation to the world is principally first through her books. Um, she says this in uh, a radio broadcast that she made in uh, the fifties. And I think that the way that she related to other people was through their books as well. She first got to know Eudora Welty, for instance, by reviewing her books in the Tatler. Um, so out of that uh, professional obligation, a friendship develops. Um, and there's this very interesting thing that happens with Bowen's correspondence. She often begins her first letter to somebody in a very formal way. Dear Mr. T.S. Eliot, or, and then quickly it becomes Dear Tom please come for dinner and we're going to be eating sheep shanks. You know, it's, it's uh, there, there's uh, intimacy is established very rapidly or not at all. Um, and I, I, I've seen this pattern over and over again in her friendships uh, through the correspondence. Um, I think that these, these friendships too uh, often meant hospitality for Bowen. She invited people to Bowen's court. Uh, we know from Julia Perry's book, uh, The Shadowy Third that Nicola was just mentioning um, that she first put Humphrey House up in her house in County Cork, uh, Bowen's court, um, and that uh, she encouraged him to write there. She, she had people coming through the house constantly, um, and she saw them, I think, as if, if they were workmanlike professional writers, she didn't want to be disturbed in the morning in particular or writing sessions in the afternoon. There was a kind of like, you've got to take your obligations responsibly to the profession of writing. I've also looked at correspondence uh, in California, in New York City, in Durham, in Oxford, in Cambridge, um, to and from Bowen. 
And there's certain other patterns that, that emerge. Um, I'm particularly intrigued by the Oxford group that she cultivated uh, before she moved to London in 1935. She was quite close friends. One of her very closest and long-term friends was with uh, David Cecil, um, who was a professor at Oxford, of course, and the author of many, many books. Uh, her, her 1930s friendship with Isaiah Berlin that's somewhat petered out, I have to say, after the 40s, in particular, when their careers diverged. Um, he went off to Washington for a while. She was touring in America and doing other things. Um, so the, 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 we can discern certain patterns from the, the, the correspondence about friendship uh, that I think and how those circles widen or don't. Um, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but uh, the death of Bowen's mother when she was 13 in 1912, in September 1912, her mother died of cancer, um, I think was, many people have talked about this, but was an absolutely formative experience for her. But I think in terms of the uh, friendships that Bowen developed, there's something to be said about a mother-daughter bond as a pattern for subsequent friendships. You see this a lot in the novels, for instance, uh, in um, the, uh, the Death of the Heart, for example, the main character Portia, her mother dies when she's at approximately the same age as Bowen was when her mother died. So is there a pattern of a, a mother-daughter relationship that becomes a pattern for subsequent friendships? Um, you know, Bowen quite famously said, and many people repeat this phrase, that when after her mother died, she was raised by a, a committee of aunts um, so relatives kicked in uh, to support her. I was looking at some correspondence uh, by Bowen at Cambridge, actually, uh, with a woman named Mary Allen. They, this is some years ago, I was looking at this pre-pandemic. Um, Mary Allen and Bowen knew each other at Downhouse School, uh, which was then in Kent. Um, and uh, Mary Allen wrote to Bowen in the course of her life. The, the, there are not many letters in this correspondence, five or six, but they show a pattern of persistence and compassion. And I think that there's something really interesting about this correspondence. They were school friends and Bowen signs her letters to Mary Allen always with her nickname, Bitha, um, which uh, Nicola was referring to nicknames uh, in the little girls. And there's, there's, I think there is something about um, that, that kind of uh, nickname that abides over decades even. So um, I uh, the last thing I want to say about the sort of autobiographical aspect of this uh, is uh, that um, there's ample correspondence with a group of gay men uh, that Bowen keeps up. L.P. Hartley, William Plumer, Eddie Sackville-West, Raymond Mortimer. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of interesting insight into Mace Harton too as a lesbian correspondent. There's something interesting about the, the correspond the autobiographical details that come out in, in those friendships that I, I would think that should be talked about a little bit more. I think if we were talking about the fiction, the place to start to think about friendships is Friends and Relations, uh, her novel from 1931. It has a whimsical Ivy Compton Burnett sort of title. Uh, Ivy Compton Burnett uh, liked to match two nouns in her titles, a family and a fortune, manservant and maidservant, elders and betters. Friends and Relations sounds like an Ivy Compton Burnett uh, sort of uh, title. But it begs a question, uh, Friends and Relations does, even in its title, should you draw your friends from your relations 
or are those categories mutually exclusive? Friends and relations should be kept apart. Um, <laughs> you know, the central complication of the novel is uh, two sisters marry, uh, get married, um, Laura and Janet Studdart uh, marry, respectively, Edward Tilney and Rodney Meggett. Um, but before the marriage, Edward wavers between sisters uh, and, one, and Janet wonders if she should have been his wife rather than Laurel. So Janet carries a bit of a torch for Edward and the feeling is mutual. Um, Tilney ought to remind you of Jane Austen since uh, Henry Tilney is the, uh, one of the characters in Northanger Abbey. Um, and the sister relation of Laurel and Janet Studdart uh, in Friends and Relations may remind you of things like Pride and Prejudice, uh, the relationship between sisters and so on. But it might also remind you of really the genetic uh, continuity of friendships in the British novel, the Irish novel, who are your friends and what can they do for you? Like Harriet befriending, uh, sorry, Emma befriending Harriet in, uh, in Emma, um, the uh, Jane Austen novel. Of course, Bowen, it was a great uh, and fervent reader of Austen. She read Austen's novels uh, almost every year. So are there, you know, and, I, and you see the continuity uh, in Bowen's novels of the, the problems of friendship, uh, a very Austinian uh, problem um, in the hotel in the last September when Lois and Marta, for instance, become friends. Lois is a little, bit immature, uh, younger than Marta. Marta has more experience with the world. She's engaged, uh, she's had romances and so on. So she's a bit of a friend who initiates uh, um, Lois into a, a world that is slightly more adult. So that this, this problem that you see in the correspondence of friendships across uh, generations um, or even age gaps uh, comes through, I think, in the, in the novels. Uh, and there's this also a fascination, um, and I will I will close uh, with a few observations about uh, some of the other novels, perhaps from the, the 30s, but youthful adolescent uh, relationships and friendships. So Theodora Thirdman and Maurice Gibbons in Friends and Relations are school friends. They are quite antagonistic and they end up living together. Um, I, they are called fierce friends. And I, I think uh, we might call them frenemies or something like that, but there's a kind of foreboding conjunction of the adjective and noun in calling two uh, young women living together fierce friends. Mm. Uh, the fierceness comes across. Or Emmeline, uh, to return to Nicholas's uh, reading of To the North, uh, Emmeline Summers lives with her sister-in-law after the death of uh, her brother Henry, who was married to Cecilia in that novel. And we're told in that novel, houses shared with women are built on sand. <laughs> this kind of <laughs> one of those Bowen sentences that rings out with a kind of augury of uh, death, you know, something is bound to go wrong when houses uh, shared by women are built on sand. Or if you think about other friendships in Bowen, Connie and Louis Lewis in the heat of the day, for instance, live in the same uh, apartment building and end up sharing a bed 
when Louis' husband uh, goes off to war. So these friendships are crisscrossed with all kinds of secret motives and amorous interests or meddlesomeness. I don't think the friendships are ever really straightforward in Bowen. Um, so it's uh, you, you, we might want to think about the consolations of friendship for Bowen or the disadvantages of friendship, but it's, a, it's an abiding theme for her. Yes, it's, it very much seems to be. Thank you. I mean, you've you've covered so much there, Alan, about the of of, of the the major novels and indeed some of the short stories as well. Um, Nicholas, I'd like to to come back to you because I, I perhaps our, our our listeners will be thinking, well, maybe if we'd had this conversation fifteen or twenty years ago, we would have been thinking of of Bowen as somebody who wrote the 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 big house novel, um, the Anglo Irish novel, or the, a, a novel about um, London and war. And yet now um, in um, at this point, we, we see a, very much as an intermodernist and experimental writer. I wonder if you could say a little bit about um, the, the change of view of how we now perceive Bowen and, and, and why we see her like this. Uh, yeah, I don't have um, a, a kind of set answer to that question, which is obviously a really big one. Uh, you know, what has happened in the last 30 years? Um, but I guess. I guess I, I'm maybe I could come back to something that I was trying to suggest earlier and, and sure. really didn't um, convey with the kind of clarity that that uh, I, I feel it. You know, I think the reason why we're talking about Elizabeth Bowen is, of course, not because of her friendships or her um, social milieu fascinating as as those things are but because of the writing yeah mm. and I uh, you know Alan made made the point that you know Bowen sort of for Bowen things come out of books before they come out of real life you know the the the, the, the kind of passion for writing in Bowen is something that becomes the basis on which friendships are formed or or um it, as, as much as the other way around and I I suppose you know one of the great influences on on Bowen is E.M. Forster and you know I, I think it's it's in some ways it's quite um, hard to overstate the the importance of Forster as a as a kind of critical overseer of you know the novel writing scene for for Bowen and, and and for others you know um the things that that Bowen talks about in one or two of her short tributes or essays about Forster suggest you know a, a sense of his uh, enormous importance for her mm. one of the and I'm years ago I, I wrote a little book about Forster and and when I was working on Forster, one of the things that I was particularly fascinated by was the idea that a book itself can be a friend. So the whole sort of relationship between novels and friendship, the, the idea that um, there's a kind of textual friendship or a, a, a way in which one's relationship with a book involves you know it well it can uh, and, it, and I think Nicola would um, 
this is this is in part what Nicola has been talking about. You can fall in love with a book, right? You can fall in love with with this strange uh, thing that we call a novel, and you know you're uh, you're entering into a sort of relationship with this text. And I think Bowen, in English novelists and in some of her other writings, gives various indications that she does conceive novels rather like Forster in that sense, you know, that, that uh, a novel is, is something that uh, indeed can change your life, you know, and even in the sort of violent way in which she thinks about the effect of reading Ryder Haggard's She when she was 12 and uh, realised that a bomb, uh, you know, a, a book could go off like a bomb, as she says. Um, but also that you can be lost in a book, you can be immersed in a book, you can uh, have have a kind of relationship with a book, which is something like that kind of sense of friendship that Forster talks about. I have a few thoughts about this, if, if I may uh, just chip Yeah, in. please do. Um, why is it that we are now reading Bowen and reading her differently? Uh, certainly, uh, I was encouraged to read Bowen in the 1980s, which I think was the exception rather than the rule in, uh, then, um, a mere 10, 15 years after her death. But I think one of the things that's happened that has changed the academic disposition towards Bowen and also the public to some degree is the emergence of Irish studies as a separate field of scholarly endeavor. Um, whereas 40 years ago when I was an undergraduate, everybody read say modernist literature was transatlantic. It was American, Irish and British all mixed together as long as it was Anglophone. But with the field day anthologies in the 1970s and uh, the 80s and 90s, uh, the various anthologies that have been devoted to Irish literature, Bowen has become more present in that field if uh, with a, a somewhat ambiguous relationship. You know, famously, she said that she felt most at home on the Irish Sea, neither in England nor in Ireland. And uh, that Anglo-Irishness, uh, it comes across, and, you know, it puts her in the, the company of Samuel Beckett and W.B. Yeats and other Anglo-Irish writers. Um, so I think that our, the way that we think about Irish literature causes us to think about Bowen uh, differently. I would also say that since her death in 1973, um, there's been a very slow trickle of uh, material that rounds up the picture of Bowen. I tried to make that trickle into something of a cascade myself by editing books on Bowen, um, but there's a great deal more to discover. And the more we know about her, the more fascinating I think she is. And the, um, the last thing I would say about Bowen that I think is really important not to lose sight of, and it, it picks up on what Nicholas was just saying, um, that if, about books as friends, Bowen liked her friends to be jovial and fun and sociable. Um, she loved society games, uh, she loved uh, motoring around and having fun, um, and so if, uh, we can't lose sight of the fact that Bowen is a comic writer, um, that sh her, you know, there are these comic touches even in the most dire situations, and she writes comedies of manners or social behavior. Um, you see the kind of 
uh, not noticing effects in the last September are definitely a kind of ironic satire on the Anglo-Irish uh, in that particular novel. And I, I derive immense pleasure from the ironies and comic situations in, in Bowen's fiction. Yeah, if I, if I could maybe add to that, unless Nicola sure. wanted to say something. Did, did, did you want to say something, Nicola? No, no, carry on. Um, no, I was just, I suppose, just thinking about this question which uh, you were asking, Miles, I'm, I'm sure that the Irishness is, is a key, but I think so too is um, feminism and, and the, the sort of the expansion of um, attention to women's writing in, in um, the 1980s and, and thereafter. And also to um, you know queer theory or to to, to gay writing to um, sexual dissidents as as it's called at the University of Sussex. You know the I completely agree with what you're saying, Alan, about the the laughter, the the comedy. You know, for me, she's one of the funniest writers. You know, just like she's like Beckett, she has a, an absolutely extraordinary capacity for that kind of um, laughter of being. But she's also, I, I suppose, a, a thinker. She's a thinker, okay? She's a poetic thinker. And mm. uh, she, she's thinking about mourning uh, all the time in all of the novels. You know, it's, it's, it's there in... Um, in every one of them in, in a different way. And this is, this is, I think is also part of her topicality, you know, that the, I think that question of, um, you know, what, what has come to be called trauma theory, for example, um, or trauma studies, uh, Bowen's work is extraordinarily articulate and thought-provoking in in that area as well uh, so I think I think it's it's not just Irish I think it's a lot of different um strands she um, speaks to a lot of um topical um ideas around literary study that we can engage with now so she she, she feels to me very much as if she perhaps speaks to where we are now than perhaps she even did towards the end of her life yeah, I mean, Nicola was was alerting us to the um, the nature of the little girls, and I think it's not it's not peculiar to the little girls. I mean, even even in the um, passage that I was reading from the beginning of To the North, uh, this idea of fellow travellers uh, as though less happy than cattle, conscious they were all going to execution. I mean, this is a this is a, to me this is a kind of uncannily. Uh, in some ways, prescient image of the 1930s and where the 1930s mm. went. I mean, it, it's, and, and uh, there's a kind of, it, to call it an interest is, is probably not quite catching it, but there's a preoccupation with the apocalyptic in, in her work as well, which is not, not simply the uh, atomic Holocaust of the little girls, for example, but but I think also of some sense of it has to do with love. 
you know, because this this is the other thing that I think has to be said in in relation to the sort of emphasis that Alan was just putting on the comic. You know, she's also extraordinarily um, per constantly writing about love. Love is mm. love is what the all of the writing is about in some some way or another, uh, and that includes the end of love and and even the end of the world of love. I mean, I think that apocalypticism is is also part of what makes her. Um, a writer to to read now yes yeah no i i certainly agree with you uh, nicola do you think there's um, a sense as you're as, as if we are to read bowen's work chronologically that there is a developmental sense of what she's trying to do with her themes with her obsessions with these ideas that we've been discussing over the last um half an hour or so um around love around remorse around um grief as well do, do, do these do these themes and obsessions change or does she change as a writer how, how are you seeing that she certainly changes as a writer but she changes with the times so you referred to her earlier as a being a writer of the intermodernist period if you think about eva trout changing scenes it's as probably as postmodern as you're going to get sure. so with sure. each text she's she's moving and she's changing she's she's um, somebody, and I can't remember who, said that she was always up-to-date in her writing. There was an up-to-datedness about her writing. So no matter what was going on, she was trying to write about it and incorporate it. And I'm sure as she, she matured herself and as she got older and she went through the various loves of her life, then that must have come out to a certain extent in her writing and the, the developing friendships and the way that she saw the world. Um, did she develop as a writer? Hmm. That would suggest that she wasn't a very good writer to start off with. Or maybe that she's just interested in different things as she grows older, maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I have to say that I really don't like the hotel, but other people might shoot me down about that one. <laughs> well, we'll see. Let, let, we'll, we'll pass it over. D d gentlemen, do you think that she uh, develops as, or changes as a writer as she, as she grows older? I often think of Bowen's career in two parts. The first part is about uh, girls, and the second part is about middle-aged women. Mm. <laughs> and the second part begins with The Heat of the Day and Stella Rodney, whose husband uh, has died, and she has a 20-something son. Uh, she has various men who are interested in her. But if you think about the later, uh, the second half of her career from the late 40s onwards, Antonia as in um, uh, the world of love, for instance, or the women in the little girls who are in the early 60s, uh, late 50s, early 60s, Eva Trout. I mean, the, the, the complications there are about women of a certain age uh, and their relationship to marriage. Um, so I, you know, I think that the the, the focus shifts quite uh, quite a lot. I would also say, and I was I was really struck by this when uh, Nicholas was reading the first pages of To the North, how European a writer Bowen is across her career, but she becomes much more transatlantic, much more North American. I think after meeting Charles Ritchie, but also after she starts visiting the U.S. Uh, constantly in the late '40s and throughout the 1950s when she was invited to give lectures all across uh, Canada and the US, mostly the US. 
Um, so there's this, but there, there's this European consciousness that you see in the in the 1930s writing. And I think that that Nicholas is quite right about the prescience of to the north and people going to their execution as early as uh, to the north. Um, and you see hints of that as well in the house in Paris when Leopold, uh, who's 11 years old, is called a refugee. Um, and there's a kind of minor uh, uh, discourse about refugees in that novel, which is from 1935. And we know that you know Bowen was a, an avid traveler in Europe in the interwar period. Uh, she and Alan Cameron were there constantly in Italy, in France. Uh, um, she was interested in places like Albania and, and so on and, and did have a, she, she loved France. She made attempts at translating Proust and, and Flaubert in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Um, it's a kind of fascinating, you know, I think that we should, one of the reasons that Bowen is so important to us right now is the way that she thinks about Europe. Um, and that there, there's a continuity across her, her career in that thinking. What does it mean to be Irish and European? Uh, what does it mean to be English and European? Um, where, where does one draw lines? Um, and that she takes on a much more global perspective um, in the, the later career as well. And both in her fiction and indeed in her nonfiction as well. And the, the, the nonfiction is something that we haven't talked about perhaps as much as the fiction because obviously she's known as a, um, a fiction writer, but. Uh, yeah, perhaps we ought to um, give some uh, give some airtime, maybe another time, to, to thinking about the the nonfiction, which is I think just as important. Nicholas, have you got any um, comments to make on either, either of those points, from Alan or Nicola? Well, only only perhaps to just add something about the hotel. Okay, because, you're going to defend it. <laughs> um, well, I don't think it needs to be defended. Uh, it's a hotel. <laughs> um, now, <laughs> I think. Um, I, I read it again last year and I, I did sort of pick it up with a certain trepidation. Mm. Um, not sure how it was going to be for me because my memories of it from previous experience had been so uh, positive. And um, I actually thought it was even better. I mean, I think it's an astonishing novel. Uh, somebody writing what in in her twenties. I mean, it, I just think it's 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 absolutely, you know, up there with anything else being written in in the twenties or thirties. And I think it's. Um, I mean, I had I did have this experience with friends and relations as well a few years ago where. I can't remember why, I think it was just chance, which is so, so important in all of these things. But Andrew Bennett and I both happened to reread Friends and Relations and both thought, oh my goodness, what, what were we thinking? You know, I mean, Friends and Relations is amazing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing text. It's like this um, absolutely sort of compacted, volcanically passionate piece of writing. And we had not done it justice at all in, in our book from the mid nineties. So, you know, there was a conference, I think at Sussex, maybe in 2013 or something where Andrew and I put together a, a kind of a, an attempt at a, a, a rereading, a, a new reading of Friends and Relations. And I could very much see myself 
trying to do that with the hotel as well, because I think, you know, let me read the opening uh, couple of sentences of the hotel, uh, if I may. Is that okay, Mark? You certainly can. Yeah. So the chapter is called Quarrel, the first chapter. Uh, and obviously, you know, you're, you're wondering from that what the quarrel is and, and how much we're going to find out about it. But it, it opens with these sentences. Miss Fitzgerald hurried out of the hotel into the road. Here she stood still, looking purposelessly up and down in the blinding sunshine and picking at the fingers of her gloves. She was frightened by an interior quietness and by the thought that she had for once in her life stopped thinking and might never begin again. And what um, an opening. Well, yeah. I, have to, I, I did go back to the hotel about six months ago and I did have to revise my earlier judgment of it. It's still not my favourite, but I have revised my opinion of it. Yeah, I mean, I, when, when I was reading it last year, you know, of course, we always read books in the time we're reading. OK, so th this is all very sort of overdetermined in certain respects. But I did experience that novel as a kind of novel for the pandemic. You know, you, you're all um, isolated in this hotel and um, it's, you know, it's, there's something about the... Uh, the intensity and a certain kind of claustrophobia um, with the sort of surroundings of the hotel, the sea and the hills, they're all there. But, but this sense of, of claustrophobia seemed to me to be very eloquent of what was, what's been happening here for, for, for people um, in Europe, in North America and across the world. Mm. Ho the hotel you know which I think Bowen is kind of playing on from that first sentence you know do you do you come out of the hotel for the first sentence I mean what is the hotel the text or is it the the place right um, I think we were talking earlier about why it should become more popular I think one of the, the reasons for the popularity has been an increased interest in short stories oh, yeah, yeah. and I think our short stories have really taken off and there's been a new collection just been brought out recently and Alan's work on the unpublished um, short stories. I think they've, they've, I think particularly probably over the last couple of years, they've really caught people's attention. That, that, that's absolutely true. And um, I've got a, a copy sitting next to me. And that's a lovely segue into uh, thinking about um, what you might recommend to our listeners. Obviously, there'd be plenty of people listening who know Bowen and love her work. But for those of you um, out there listening who don't know um, I haven't engaged with Bowen's work yet. Um, perhaps our guests could uh, give you a, a sense of where to go first. Nicola, let's start with you. You yeah, see, this is really always a very difficult one. When anybody says to me, what's your favourite Bowen novel? It's like having to choose your favourite child. She's what's, never good for a, what's, what's good for a beginner? <laughs> what's good for a bit? Well, I, I just have to point to my, my favourite novel at the moment, which is Eva Trout or Changing Scenes. I just think it's an extraordinary novel full of surprise and full of narrative technique and enjoyment and humour. Um, yes, yeah, so that would be my go-to for, for somebody who wants to dip their toe into the Bowen waters. And it's accessible and it's 
an enjoyable, no absolutely. doubt. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, in fact, her writing in Eva Trout is is probably more accessible than it is in some of the earlier novels. Right. Okay. Interesting. Thank you very much, um, Alan. What would you recommend? I'm going to make two recommendations. Uh, I have a short story that I'd like to recommend, uh, The Disinherited, uh, an, a short, a long short story from the 1930s. I think it's a masterpiece. It begins with a descriptive passage that goes on for about a page of, of an autumnal, oozy, trickly uh, atmosphere. It's a, in terms of stickiness and sludginess, it's one of the best things ever committed to, to paper, but it's about, uh, it's a very complex plot in a, in a short space, but it has, you know, motoring across countrysides. It has an odd friendship between a, a possible heiress and a woman with a car. Um, it has a chauffeur. It has a murder plot. It speaks to uh, her interest in, de in detective fiction and murder, especially in the 1920s and 30s. Um, Bowen was quite attracted. Uh, she read detective fiction voraciously. She ended most of her Tatler reviews uh, between 1941 and, and the mid-50s um, with a segment in there when she wasn't reviewing the Tatler. Um, she ended those reviews uh, almost always with a thriller, whether an espionage novel or a detective novel. She was a great connoisseur of detective fiction. Um, my novel recommendation uh, to pair with The Disinherited um, is going to be The House in Paris. In many of her essays about novelistic technique, Bowen talks about situation. She doesn't mean plot. She, she means situation, a kind of central geometry in a novel, a central complication or problem from which spin out all kinds of possibilities and vectors. And the cent I, I think the, the house in Paris is a perfect geometry of two children crossing in a house in Paris on a day in February. Um, why are they there? Who are their parents? Uh, where are they going? You know, it has a, almost an X structure. Um, Nick, Nicholas was talking about the claustrophobic effects uh, in Bowen's writing. And there's this claustrophobia that sets in in this house with an ailing woman upstairs and her daughter who hurries around to take care of her and take care of these children. Um, it begins with a taxi ride in the morning across Paris and it ends almost with a taxi ride to the Gare de Lyon at the end. It had, so in, it has this sort of wonderful uh, structure to it um, with, a, with this other kind of complication of being in the present then in the past and in the present again in the three parts of the novel. I think it has the most exquisite writing about love affairs and in crossings um, that I can I can think of. I teach this novel quite often um, in a European novel class uh, as my one Anglophone, a non-translated novel. I think it's gripping. I think the students find it gripping. Uh, I, I the more I read it, the more I uh, appreciate it. Wow, what a recommendation. I think you've probably sold it to many, many people um, who are listening. Thank you very much. Uh, Nicholas, what would be uh, your choice? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing for me to do this because I've just been raving about the hotel and friends and relations. And I thought I was going to be raving about 
to the north in a in a more sustained way than I've had the opportunity to do. But I I think I'm going to mention just a couple of short stories. Mm, sure. Uh, one of them is called the parrot, and uh, the other is called reduced. And uh, you know I think Nicola was saying a, a moment ago about the sort of the rise in the popularity of the short story, the study of the short story, the enjoyment of, of reading short stories, and Bowen's uh, importance in, the, in that context. I think there are many remarkable stories by Bowen. I mean, it, it, it would be, I would find it difficult to put together a kind of selected, uh, although it would be fun to do so. But um, the parrot, is a is a wonderfully funny, incisive story about I suppose something we haven't talked about, which is the the relationship between humans and non-human animals, uh, the the concept of ventriloquism or of uh, mimicry, which I think you know bo bo both of these things and these things are combined in in the parrot are profound interests throughout uh, Bowen's writing. And, and the way in which a parrot in this particular story crosses these, you know, in, in a sense, as we, as we all know, entirely arbitrary borders or boundaries between one person's property and another person's property. Uh, and, you know, that remark about the Irish Sea earlier is apropos here, you know, it's it's also the borders between countries that I think uh, Bowen is is inviting us to think about. And, and, and the borders also between classes, between, you know, the, the working class, the middle class, the different sort of levels of middle class and the, these sorts of um, entirely artificial uh, destructive, uh, um, unhealthy um, divisions between between people, but but also I think between the human and and the non-human as well. I think I think mm. you know one of the things that makes Bowen's work so poetic uh, has to do with her openness to. You know, metaphors, similes, a vocabulary that embraces cats and dogs and and other other creatures. You know, it's it's a very um, mobile thinking of uh, of of what the human is and how we think of the human, how we think about the the vulnerability uh, of the human. And the other, the other story reduced is nicely, I think, ca capturing, capturing something of what Alan was just saying about the, the passion for the detective story and um, the, the mystery and the murder mystery, especially. So it, it's a kind of murder mystery story. Um, it's, it's short, but it's also an, an astonishing uh, piece of writing about the idea of what reduced means. Yeah. You know, so it's people living in reduced circumstances, but it's also this kind of reduced writing. 
uh, it, it's an amazing experiment that is that is also extraordinarily successful as a you know a completely compelling readable short story sure and, it, and that's one that i haven't read so that's one that i'm going to go and, and pick up shortly um that's wonderful thank you all so much for your for your recommendations indeed for being um on the podcast today and a, and a really good start i think to the third season of the podcast so um yeah thank you so much thank you um to, to nicola darwood to alan hepburn and to Nicholas Royal, and indeed, my thanks to you all for listening.